Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, we know there's a touch of stranger things underway in consumer land right now. People are cutting their spending as concerns continue about the economy, but the spending contraction is not complying with historical behaviour. Essentially, we have a two-speed consumer economy. That was born out a few weeks ago when ComBank IQ and analytics house Quantium, owned by Woolworths, released their first report for the March quarter on spending trends based on 7 million ComBank account holders. In a nutshell, travel, entertainment and experiences are all but untouchable. Large swathes of consumers are cutting even essentials to ensure they can still get out and about here and abroad. Beyond that, a notable point in ComBank IQ's data is a fault line that's emerged between young and old. Younger segments, with exceptions, are feeling the pinch and reducing their discretionary wallets. The oldies, 50 and over, are cashed up, are feeling relative economic freedom. Kids moving out of home helps. And uh, for me, that's fantastic, although I didn't say that publicly. But this two-speed economy is getting very bloody interesting, although it's not new. Many would know of a segment now bundled into Roy Morgan's database called NEOs, short for New Economic Order. NEOs represent about 25% of the population, but more than 50% of discretionary spending. One of the architects of the NEO segment, Dr. Ross Honeywell, who's the founder of advisory firm Premium, says NEOs are staying true to form in this economic cycle. They're still up for spending and most have the capacity to do so. It presents a challenge, really, for every brand and product. How do you do premium when the market appears to be heading with velocity to cheaper and commoditized options? And how do you do both simultaneously? Tony Pearson is CEO of AH Beard, the Australian mattress manufacturer who is fighting in a $1.2 billion consumer market conditioned for a long time on 50% off events. We see that all the time. They're pretty constant. But AH Beard is a premiumization strategy, probably best evidenced currently by demand for its two to $3,000 mattress lines, which are holding firm on sales while trading down is evident in more budget lines, which the company also plays in. Tony Pearson, interestingly, says experiences are one of his biggest competitive threats. Although he does think in the second half, the pent-up post-COVID desire for travel might come off. But enough from me on all this. Joining Tony on the mics to explore this two-speed consumer economy is Neo Maestro, Dr. Ross Honeywell, and ComBank IQ's Head of Innovation and Analytics, Wade Tubman. Um, thanks for joining, gents. Great, great, great subject. Uh, got everyone thinking and talking and working out what the heck's going on out there in spending. does sound a little bit bleak, but we're going to find out some uh, top-line data from Wade uh, first on the ComBank IQ report you produced a couple of weeks ago. Um, just give us your top line, Wade, on what's going on there. There's a bunch of surprises, I think, and some really interesting sort of, I think we talked about fault lines going on between sort of two consumer groups. Uh, welcome, Wade. And just um, the top line from 7 million combat customer uh, spending habits. It's a rich database to pull some insights from. Yeah, absolutely. We spend a lot of time diving through into those customer behaviours. We're trying to understand not just the sort of the macro spending we see in the Australian economy, but we're trying to understand 
how consumers are making choices and how they're flexing their wallet, either up or down in these current circumstances. Uh, the headline is what we're seeing is uh, there is a divide, uh, largely along the lines of young and old, but we could talk more about it because there is always a danger of averages and we can't say that all old people are, are spending fine and all young people are, are suffering. Probably when we, we dive into it, we think about essential versus discretionary spend. It's a sort of an age-old thing that during times of financial stress, consumers will contract back to essential spending. What we're seeing this time around is quite different. We are seeing shifts in all types of spending, but we're in particular seeing a lot of strength in discretionary spending, which is quite unusual. It's quite contrary to sort of normal economic theory. For example, what we're starting to see is very strong trends, not just recently, but going forward in travel and accommodation, so holidays, eating out, uh, getting food delivered in and entertainment, all of which are, are highly discretionary items. And what we're really seeing here is partly a bounce back from COVID, but we're starting to see people actually start to think about some of these discretionary categories, these experiences as actually being the, the new essential for them. Now, overall, that money has got to come from somewhere. And so what we're starting to see is consumers actually starting to sort of nip and tuck and pare back on some of their essential spending. A couple of examples, um, in the insurance category, most people aren't willing to drop their health insurance or drop their car insurance. It's just, it's just too risky if they, if they do believe in that and have it. But what they're doing is things like uh, cutting back maybe on their health insurance extras or increasing the excess on their car insurance because all of those type of things drop a few extra bucks into the, into the wallet. For telco, we're seeing uh, some consumers choosing to choose a tier two telco. But overall, like that's not happening for everyone. There are definitely groups out there who are we're almost seeing the opposite trend. And that's largely concentrated in the over 55s. Um, the over 55s are really increasing their spending, not just keeping up with the high inflation. They're not just spending sort of more on more expensive goods. They're actually going out and buying more goods. They're increasing their consumption. So much so that sort of the over 65s, uh, we're seeing a definite step out there. Their consumption is dramatically increasing. One final observation is that if we think about this divide, it isn't always young and old. Um, you know, in our data, we're able to sort of slice and dice and understand, for example, that there are groups out there, and, and, and maybe we refer to them as NEOs, who are in the younger age groups, but still have that spending power. But what it leaves us with is other younger people, in particular, 20 to 25-year-olds and 25 to 30-year-olds, who in particular are either in the rental market or have entered the first home buying market, who are starting to contract a lot simply because of those high housing prices or, or high costs of putting a roof over their head. The interesting thing here is, though, there's some other categories. Uh, when I recall looking through your report, fashion, for instance, was, was in a bit of trouble. What other areas, what other segments are feeling the strain? Fashion was a good indicator, I think, to, you talked about in your briefing a few weeks back. Yeah, definitely. We're seeing a couple of categories, uh, apparel and household goods. And I'll talk to them quite briefly, but you know, we're not saying all apparel down and, and all household goods are down. What we're saying is uh, if we consider the whole market, sort of the good, better, best spectrum or the, the budget mainstream premium spectrum, across all of that, and you've got to remember the weight of money probably lives in that mainstream to, to budget area, um, we're definitely seeing contraction there. Um, apparel down around 5%, which after we take into account inflation is probably down you know, 15 to 20% and household goods down around 11. But again, 
just wanting to point out the danger of averages, there are going to be premium segments in both of those where we're going to be seeing the opposite effect, where mm. the people with this high spending power uh, are, are willing to continue to, to either trade up or, or not willing to sacrifice, uh, you know, quality. Overall, then, uh, what are you thinking? What are you forecasting in terms of the aggregate here? I know we just talked about not doing this, but I'm just about to ask you one. So the next quarter, the quarter we're in now and the coming September quarter and through to the end, what's your sense on directionally where it's going to go, Wade? Yeah, we're definitely seeing this trend um, progress strongly from January, February, March this year. We start to see sort of things like forward booking. So we start to get an indicator about trends that are coming up. But equally, when we think about it, you know, interest rates rising, um, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to be stopping. And when we, you know, start to fast forward on, there actually is a lot of latent housing cost increases to come through the system. Uh, it's not just the variable rate mortgage, mortgage cliff that we all talk about. There, there is certainly a lot of variable rates that are also still catching up. Um, a quirk of the system is that, you know, say when the RBA rises, uh, raises interest rates, banks follow quite closely afterwards. However, the actual repayment that consumers repay might actually change two or even three months down the track. It's just a quirk of how it works. It happens with all banks. But what that means is rate rises, like the, the June rate rise, may not be coming through to consumers until August or even September. So there is definitely more to flow through. But what that means is we're going to be seeing some of these younger age groups, in particular, that sort of 25 to 35-year-old group in their formative years, um, you know, with those sort of high LVR mortgages, uh, looking for tricks and tips to sort of cut back on their spending. And if we think about rate rises, you got the opposite end at the other end of the spectrum. The over 65s, in particular, those self-funded retirees, you know, their purchasing power just went up. The ability for ComBank IQ to see what's happening in spending, you mentioned um, that in travel, you're seeing like basically forward bookings are a way out. So people are booking and looking and paying now for things that may be, you know, six months down the track. That's the pent up demand that we see people still wanting for experiences, travel. That's an interesting one, right? There's a real desire to do that. That's showing in your numbers as well, in your cardholder behavior. Yeah, definitely. You know, we can look back. There's a whole bunch of stats that show us how big travel was at Christmas, how big it was at Easter. But we can actually, yeah, we look at those forward bookings and we're seeing those bookings being made now for the middle of the year, school holidays, late in the year, and even even Christmas. So we have um, both, I guess, a sort of a view of what's happened recently, but we also get a view of what's coming. And some of the growth rates we're seeing are looking strong for that second half of the year. You know, at, at some point, uh, it, it does have to come off. I think we get asked the question a lot. At what point is everyone just sort of over the catch-up of COVID? But um, at least the most recent data we've got is showing that that catch-up is still not done. Ross, tell us what the hell is a NEO? What's their mindset? And talk us through the neuroscience part of this. I started working on this when I ran KPMG's Centre for Consumer Behaviour in Asia-Pacific. And... Uh, I really wanted to identify who spent the most, the most frequently, but really I wanted to understand the psychology that made them big spenders. You know, what was the mindset behind it? So this NEO, which you said is an acronym for New Economic Order, isn't just a population classification. It's a mindset. It's, it's a way of thinking, a way of living. But the NEO algorithm allows clients to look at high-value consumers through a scientific lens. That's really the point. And it's deeply guided, as you say, by neuroscience. So I, 
I really don't want to get too technical, particularly for you, Paul. Oh, thank you, Ross, but I appreciate your kindness. The limbic system is the critical part of our brain that produces emotions, memories, but really, most importantly, actions. And given that emotions are at the heart of most decisions, they're also at the root of, really, they're at the root of most purchases. Uh, neuroscience in general, and the, this limbic system in particular, uh, are central to identifying neos because neos just don't buy things because they need them. Neos buy experiences and products, beautiful products, because of how they make them feel. You know, I'm going to get into really dangerous territory here because it's a parallel, if you like, to what I hear often about behavioural economics, that as individuals, as humans, we, we actually are less rational and more uh, emotional than we like to uh, like to think of ourselves, and behavioural economics plays into that. I don't know what the parallel is for you, Ross, but what I am interested in, what you do know, is what is going on with the neo mindset now? Are they, are they uh, 25% of the population plus 50% of discretionary spending? Are they doing what we thought they would always do in the current environment? Yeah, they are. Uh, and just before I get on to that, the, you, you're absolutely right about the emotion part. But the flip side of NEOs is a group we call traditionals. There are 10 million of, of Australians with a traditional, what we call a traditional mindset in Australia. They're much more rational. For them, it's all about price. You know, they get up in the morning and everything starts and ends with price. Whereas for NEOs, the 24, 25% of the population, for them, price is just the cost of falling in love. And if they can't fall in love, if there isn't emotion attached to it, then they're not going to spend their hard earned on it. But for the, you know, 10 million Australians are very rational with the way they make their choices. Thinking about the, um, uh, you know, recessions, NEOs are first and fastest out of in any economic downturn. So typically their consumer confidence is 20 points ahead of these Australians with a traditional mindset. And when there's a crash, a recession, they both come very close together. Er, er, everyone drops, you know, the whole thing goes into the toilet. But then the NEOs are off again first and fastest. And within months, they're back up to being 20 points ahead of traditionals, and that's exactly what they're doing. So they're not missing a beat right now, and they're spending right across all demographics um, because NEO is a, it's a population classification, it's not a demographic classification. So, you know, older ones are spending, but there's plenty of younger ones spending as well, as um, Wade pointed out. Those neos are uh, threaded all through what Wade's seen in, in the upside of spending. Is that is it neos all in that camp, or is it something? Am I trying to cross a bridge that I shouldn't? No, no. What what Wade's seeing, I think, is whether it's um, baby boomers or you know Gen Z or Gen Y, whatever it might be. There's a whole bunch of them, uh, particularly the young ones, that um, have stopped spending, but they're the traditional Gen Y or millennials. The traditional millennials have completely gone to the barricades. They're not spending at all. Whereas the neos um, are, just keep spending, but they're kind of under the radar because the, um, uh, the, these traditionals are always the majority of the, any population. So they tend to, with the averaging, they tend to kind of look like they're pulling it down. But when we look at the forecasts, the retail for spend forecasts for up until Christmas, you can see that it's actually the neos, the, 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 the trend lines are incredible. The neos are way above everyone else. 
Then if you imagine the next line down is the population and the next line down is traditionals. What's happening is neos are pulling the whole population up and keeping it out of recession. NEOs are in, in the Roy Morgan single source data set, is that correct? Correct. So that's where you're able to track what's going on because they've segmented, Roy Morgan has segmented that. What is the difference between a NEO and the big spender segment that Roy Morgan also has a classification on? Is there a difference? The big spender classification is exactly that. It's, it's about spending. It's a spender model. It's a spend model. But it doesn't tell you anything else. It just tells you spend. You know, it's like age. Right. Age is... Uh, uh, and generational uh, classifications are really good at doing one thing, telling you how old someone is. Um, the spend model is really good at telling you that, you know, these people spend a lot. But it's not enough because you need to be able to understand what motivates them to spend, why they spend, who are they. You know, you need a lot more rich information. Putting it another way, 90% of NEOs are in Roy Morgan's big spender category. 90% right, right. of NEOs are in Roy Morgan's big spender category. 6% of Australia's 10 million traditional mindset consumers, 6% are in the big spender category, and many of them are affluent and wealthy. They just really don't like spending. Yeah. But what are you, Ross? Are you a neo? You'd have to be because you're very classy from where I'm looking. <laughs> I am. I am. I absolutely am. I used to watch my wife. I used to watch my wife when I was developing this originally and thought, there's got to be a classification for this. <laughs> Don't we? No, both the way we live our lives. And uh, that's, that was kind of the genesis of it a very long time ago. Yeah, um, I'm resisting all sorts of points on that, and I've just done it successfully. There is two points before we move to Tony, though. He's got some really interesting things going on. Is um, You talked about how the younger segment, you've got high spenders, low spenders. There's also in the NEO, you've got two camps, established and aspirational. I'm assuming that's around spending capacity for established NEOs and the aspirational is those that want to be but aren't don't have the deep pockets or don't have the pockets yet. Explain what's what that's about, Ross. Yeah, you don't have to be mathematically gifted to understand that we were talking earlier about 24, 25% of the population being NEOs, 50% being these uh, Australians with a tra traditional mindset. The rest a group we call uh, aspiring NEOs. So these are people with the NEO mindset and there are 194 different variables in the NEO mindset. It's a very complex algorithm. So they, they, they have a lot of the um, characteristics of the NEO mindset, but they don't spend enough. The, the NEO algorithm is mercilessly commercial. If you don't spend enough, you get tipped out. Right. But these people have had a lot of the characteristics of the NEO mindset don't become traditionals. They're just not neos, so we call them aspiring neos. They're probably, and it's because it is a capacity thing. So it might be a teacher, for example, who has a lot of the neo desires, but doesn't have the spending capacity, which is just in their case income, to be able to spend enough for the algorithm to identify them as neos. Got it, Tony Pearson. You are running a company that is in a $1.2 billion consumer spend category. It's mattresses. Most of us, including yourself, go. That's not so sexy, but it's really, really interesting what you're up to there in terms of your premiumization strategy and what you're seeing in the market right now. We might start with that, Tony. Is the economic climate starting to, how deeply is it affecting that business, that sector in, in sleep? Yeah, it's, it, it's certainly in this this uh, second half of the financial year, it's, it's really starting to bite. So, you know, if I go back to 
Uh, January, probably the back end of January, actually, we really started to see a tightening in demand. By February, uh, we're starting to see negativity on comparisons to prior periods. That deteriorated uh, into February um, and March, and April uh, was actually one of the biggest drops that I've seen in a competitive uh, in a comparative period for a, a long period of time. You know, we're talking about retail consumer market uh, being down between sort of 25, 30 percent, depending on the state that you're in in Australia. Uh, May we have seen some improvement, but again, the question will be what impact do things like uh, additional cost of living pressures mortgage rate increases, increases in rent, what's that going to have uh, on demand moving forward? And my observation in our business echoes uh, what Wade mentioned earlier in terms of I actually think a lot of our competition for share of wallet has actually moved to experience entertainment travel, uh, hospitality. And you know, that's that's true in terms of the potential demand coming off the consumer market, but we also have a large channel uh, that provides products through to hotels. Demand in the hotel market is actually up significantly. What's your hunch on why that is? What's going on there? Is a difference in the corporate market versus consumer? Why is that happening? I think it's it echoes the the consumer demand. So you know, hotels are seeing an increased right. requirement or demand for their product. Uh, they're in a highly competitive market spaces, and and you know, the mattress is one of the primary um, you know selling propositions in a hotel. Uh, so you know, we're we're the benefit of some of that pent up demand effect and the total growth in looking for um, experiences in our economy. You produce a seventy thousand dollar mattress. Yeah, US dollars. US. So there's a hundred, nearly a hundred thousand plus yeah. Australian. What's that going to do for my sleep? Or what does it do for those people, those super rich neos? Yeah, look, every mattress that we we build, whether it's a, a six ninety nine mattress or a seventy thousand dollar mattress, um, is built in alignment with our purpose of improving life through better sleep. So we'll do that through a combination of componentry, manufacturing techniques, and of course, you can't do all that heavy lifting of improving life through better sleep just with a mattress. So it might be education services that you happen to need. So what I can guarantee you is that through engaging with AHB as a brand, we will be able to improve your life through better sleep. And we might get to that because it goes to what we're talking earlier about experience. But let's get to your what you're doing with the business in terms of managing these two consumer segments. You believe in the NEO strategy, you have applied it in, of some sort. When did you come across this and why did you like it? Yeah, I do. So uh, it was probably a little over um, uh, two years ago. I was able to to have a conversation with Michelle Levine. She's the CEO of Roy Morgan, and uh, be introduced to uh, to Dr. Ross. What I particularly liked was it actually helped us explain and very very clearly articulate what we were seeing in our retail distribution channels and explain differences in in demand activity and cycles. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give some examples on what we've actually seen in terms of the neo market versus the traditional market in, in just the recent period. So if I go back to September 22 and I have a look at the end of that quarter, what we found were neos were 46% more likely to purchase a mattress in that period. And you've, you've got to say in comparison to where we sit today, times were getting tougher but they certainly weren't at the heightened level that we're experiencing right now. So as things actually got a little bit more difficult for the general consumer, the likelihood of a neo purchasing actually went up 
So by uh, the time we had the December quarter come around, 49% more likely that you would purchase a mattress. Now that's great, but not great if your total volumes are coming off. So the positive news for us was both of those periods, the demand from the NEO market at the end of September last year went up 32%, while the traditionals came off 2%. By December, the demand was still up for NEOs. It was up 11%, but now you've got the traditionals coming off at a faster rate. It's down 13% by this rate. What we're able to watch then over the top of that data was our price segmentation. So um, as I said, we have mattresses that retail in Australia between $699 and $25,000. But the, the large segments are below $1,000, one to two, two to three, three plus. In that category of $2,000 plus and $3,000 plus, we have not seen a decline at all in terms of volumes. If anything, they're marginally up. What we're watching on the categories underneath that is certainly some movement to potentially purchase down or delay purchase. And certainly through February, March, April, a lot of that's delay. And then go back to the other competition in, in travel. Anytime we see a period where there's perhaps an additional public holiday, we see travel increase quite dramatically and we see retail consumer demand for household goods like mattresses reduce. Really, really interesting. And so when your data was showing, when the Roy Morgan data was showing uh, NEOs were X percent more likely to buy a mattress, I take your point on the two to $3,000 band, price point band, but did they? So they said they were going to do it. The Morgan research said it was going to. Did they actually do it? Yeah, no, this data is actual on actual spend. So so that is that is actual purchases in that period. Okay, right. And so what becomes now, uh, Tony, so how do you articulate this strategy because you've got two different groups. Are you communicating differently? Do you have different products for them? What are you doing to tap those, that neo segment versus traditionals? You know, good question. So the, the products don't uh, need to be differentiated. We happen to be in a market where the product is, is probably one of the least known products on the market. You know, often talk about the mysterious rectangle box that actually can do some incredible things to improve your life through better sleep. So um, we don't have to change the product. And we have enough depth or breadth across the range architecture and price points. Um, what we need to do is communicate and articulate our brand commitment, promise, and the experience that you're going to have when you interact with AHBeard in a very different way to the way we used to do that. And what I mean by that is very clearly understand that mindset that Dr. Ross was talking about in terms of the NEO mindset and communicate in a like-minded fashion, backed up in a very transparent and authentic way in the actual experience with the uh, with the brand and the business. How does it go with traditionals? Do they they don't care as much, or you don't try as much? No, they de- they definitely care. So you know there are there are things that are emblematic of that neo buyer that a traditional buyer will absolutely be attracted to, but the reverse is not true. So if, if we talk about, you know, in your intro, you spoke about the mattress consumer market typically being price-led, you know, it's 50% off, you should purchase now, and it's often shouted at the consumer. So a traditional may hear that, they won't necessarily be put off by that, but a neo-buyer would. So we would, we would be very conscious about how we present information about our brand or the products, because neos want to self-discover. 
in many ways. They want to actually go through an experiential process of learning more about your brand and your product, whereas a traditional maybe wouldn't. So we just change, if you like, the language and we change um, the channel of the communication and the ways that that consumer can interact with our brand. Are you over-indexing on NEOs in terms of your customer base? And do you have a way to just define whether they are when they've bought? So what percentage of your customers, not on a revenue, but on a customer basis, what percentage would be NEOs versus traditionals in your set? Do we over-index on it within our brand? Yes, we do. But largely, um, the population proportions are, are as you know, Dr. Ross presented. So I'll give, I'll give okay. some example of that. So if I looked at that 2000 dollar plus category in the december quarter period the neo buyer accounted for 39 percent of the volume of that segment the traditional buyer also accounted for 40 percent of the volume but they're double the population if that makes sense and then if i look at ah beards performance in that category against my competition yes we are performing at a higher rate if you hadn't or didn't deploy this NEO strategy a couple of years ago, uh, Tony, where would your business be? What would have happened? As Dr. Ross said earlier, the NEO audience purchases at a higher value and they purchase more often. So anytime you're in a depressed market, you, you absolutely are looking for the highest possible return off reduced demand. Now, in a business like ours, we're a manufacturer. Uh, in Australia, we have six manufacturing centres and any manufacturer also requires volume. And so what uh, it's allowed us to do is be a little bit more strategic around the balance between volume-driven versus margin return um, and then understand exactly how to communicate with the proportion of the market that has a higher propensity to spend at those rates. Got it. Now, uh, one more, which is a bit of an offshoot question, but I'm intrigued by it because we see so much globally now about a return to sort of local manufacturing and the glo- the inversion of globalization, if you like, offshoring. And so many companies have been caught out. Interestingly, you talk about having six manufacturing plants. Supply then was not ch- as challenged as maybe other sectors. And you think about cars or even other competitors have been uh, having a local manufacturing base. Is that show- having some benefit for you now or is it still to come? No, it always has, but it's uh, it's been incredibly challenging. So there's a couple of elements to that. So being a local manufacturer absolutely has been of value, both from a, a consumer perspective, from an employability, working with the communities with which we not just manufacture but distribute product through our partners. Um, that's been incredibly valuable. And we have a commitment to not only manufacturing local, but working with local supply chains when they're, where they're available. Now, not all components, uh, particularly some of the high quality componentry is actually manufactured in Australia. So managing supply chain in the last three years has been incredibly problematic and continues to be so. And, and I do think that'll be an ongoing challenge. Wade, let's go to some of the things that Tony talked about. What you're seeing in your conversations uh, with companies across the board that you're talking to at IQ, how many are tackling it like Tony and what are you seeing, uh, how are you seeing companies respond to the the changing economics, consumer spending, but in a different way to what they might be used to uh, historically in, in economic cycles like we're in? Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of reaction um, and and strategies very similar to what Tony's saying. I think that 
you know, there is a uh, maybe it's a stratification or a polarization of of the market. Uh, there's definitely a sort of a push down by those who you know are feeling the financial pressure. And there's a, a strength of those that aren't. And so if you think about any brand, um, uh, it sits somewhere in that sort of, I, I think the word is the good, better, best spectrum. Um, I always like that because, you know, it always starts at, at good. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's basically that there's the uh, offerings at budget, mainstream and premium. Now, some brands just compete in, in one of those, Louis Vuitton, um, you know, for example, a Prada, you know, they, they're just up in that premium segment. And then there's other businesses like Tony's, uh, which have uh, sort of a market that can actually touch multiple price points. And I think that from talking to our clients about what's going on and how consumers are reacting to these pressures, it really depends on their um, strategy and whether they've placed their brand or brands in terms of brand groups across those uh, spectrums. So I think that, you know, Tony, uh, you know, certainly sounds well placed in terms of having uh, offerings able to uh, attract the neos and and those that you know aren't just weathering this storm, but actually uh, you know could well be thriving in these environment. Um, but you know, there could be you know competitors in Tony's space, or, or certainly others that we're speaking to who who don't have such a stratified brand strategy. And if you've sort of happened to have ridden a wave of, you know, a group of, I think uh, we'd be calling them traditionalists here, but, you know, maybe maybe young, uh, yeah, more traditional spenders, and that's, that's where you chase the money over the last 10 years, uh, you might be starting to feel that there's uh, those walls are closing in around you. And Ross, are you, what are you seeing uh, in terms of your travels on how companies are, are responding to this, particularly in a in a neo context, um, is it still you know the trailblazers like Tony, or is it is it more common now? Are companies, are company bosses, seeing the, the merits? No, I think um, we're seeing this, uh, and we've we've actually been doing. You know, I, I mentioned we've been doing this for two decades, and you know we've seen major um, Australian and uh, international brands benefiting from a differential customer strategy using the neos and the traditional mindset and you know tony is uh, a, a more recent uh, example of that and it, it's as he said it's going going really well for him but what we're we, we are seeing you know we're even seeing supermarkets for example who are uh, uh, really considering you know they're being pulled really pulled by price you know they everything they're being bashed by the need for price and uh, they're, they're even, you know, the executives in some of the big supermarkets are saying, well, we need to have a premiumization strategy, not only for margin, as Tony's talking about, but also as an aspiration for those who are so under price pressure so that every now and then or when there is a special purchase that they, in fact, have an aspiration for something that is a more premium thing. So it's very, very important for the mindset, for the you know, even the, the kind of um, mental health of people these days to actually have something to aspire to. And uh, just a final word on price. Um, I, I don't try to imagine that these neos are, you know, mad spenders for the sake of it. Everyone wants the best price. Everyone wants the best price. But as I said earlier, for people with the tr traditional mindset, starts and ends with price and for Neos it's the, the price of uh, just the cost of falling in love. There's still some mixed signals though right because I think I, I talked to Wade about this a couple of weeks ago uh, in talking with the CMO at Arnott's for example uh, Jenny Dill talked about 
they're seeing 13, 14, 15% growth in, in some of their lines in supermarkets like Tim Tams and her view, uh, some of their products are going really strong inside supermarket and they are not a price, you know, that's not a not an expensive, but it's not the cheapest biscuits you can get, right? She says her view was that people were trading down out of somewhere else into Tim Tams from, you know, uh, white cloth tables or dining out. Although if you look at ComBank IQ's data, it's saying that everyone's, you know, out and about and wanting to experience. So there's still some fuzzy waters or muddy waters to to navigate on that. Any thoughts from either of you on just that trading down, trading up stuff? I think what's happening, I think it's a very interesting thing about the trading down, trading up thing, because what happens is that the mindsets don't change. What changes is the architecture of the market. And, and so we're seeing, if you take Kmart, for example, Kmart is the basic needs store brand for Neos, for, you know, kids, um, underwear, all that kind of stuff, but a, a, an elective or a almost discretionary store for very, very price-driven traditionals. Right. Um, and that moves, you know, it might be Kmart this time and it might be something else. So the Tim Tam thing might go up and down, but it might just be that kind of midpoint where they're trading down and trading up. Tony? Yeah, I'd add to that. So I have Neo buyers that purchase $699 mattresses, you know, $1,500 mattresses, as well as they're purchasing $5,000 mattresses. So the segment exists right across price architecture. Mm. So the, the point we were talking to earlier, total demand within household goods, including mattresses, is down at the moment. So there is a there is a, a restriction or a, or a a, a reduction in, in demand, certainly over the last half. And we see that show up in terms of both volume and value, right? So if I take a look at total volumes, volumes are off. Value has come off as well because what's happening is the average unit value when you aggregate has come down, which tells you people are typically trading down, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're buying cheap. If I look at our segment, 12% of the number of mattresses sold, the units, retail for over $2,000, but it's 40% of the revenue. Right. And so any any movement, you know, a 10% change of 12% volumes can be significant. And the margin mix on that, you know, therefore means that you're, you're going to have a faster um, reduction in your revenue. Now that doesn't mean they're not they're um, they're not purchasing necessarily not purchasing the product they're just purchasing at a different price point in that market space. Right, and so when you talked um, just then, Tony, about going Neo's going all through the price points, oh, it doesn't make it very difficult to navigate because it's not just it's it's not a black and white binary proposition here. You sort of got some to an extent. No, it doesn't. What matters is is it, let's talk about what's important for me in terms of marketing. As a manufacturer, it's not traditional that I communicate directly to a consumer and therefore within our commercial makeup of the business, there's not an enormous amount of budget allocated to marketing. So if I'm going to do that, I'm going to want to do that in a very, very conscious and controlled way. And so what's important is how I communicate to my entire market, increasing the likelihood that the neo purchaser is going to be attracted to me and my brand. Okay. So so then the behavior, the metrics that we talked to earlier is actually an outcome of how successfully we did that as well as the behavior of a total market. 
Paul, it touches on something that um, Tony said earlier, and, and, and I have a, a business rule that traditionals or Australians with a tr traditional mindset will go where the neos go, but neos tend not to go where the traditionals go. So to have a, a value proposition and a brand proposition that's for neos is a whole lot uh, more sensible and safer, and particularly in a market like this, than it is to just be going on price and estranging the neos and losing your margin. Wait, in terms of what you're seeing in the data and what you think may be coming through, you're probably early, already getting some early signals from card spending data in the current quarter because that's that's your gig. I guess you get early visibility. What Tell us, give us some insight. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, yeah, we're sort of two-thirds of the way through the next quarter, so we are watching it eagerly. As I said, uh, we definitely are seeing these sort of these overall cost pressures going up. But, you know, as we've just heard, uh, there is a full spectrum of consumers out there and there's there's some that, you know, to be honest, are probably going to be increasing their expenditure throughout the back half of this year and there's others that are doing the opposite. So I think the message that I have out of this is it's actually really important to understand like where your brand sits and where your business sits and make sure that you're pivoting your strategy to those customers that are going to be the the haves and, you know, making sure that you've got, not avoiding the have-nots, but making sure you've got the right strategy at play at play there. Because certainly the most recent data we're looking at is showing this trend is going to continue. So just sort of playing out uh, sort of, I guess, a brand strategy that, that doesn't uh, recognize that, you know, won't take advantage or or could put the situation, um, you know, so make the situation worse in the back, worse in the back half of this year. Got it. So, Tony, actually, you made a, a really interesting point earlier when we were talking uh, about how you think there may be a chance that the travel and experience uh, demand will tail off in the second half. Why do you think that? I think there's a, a couple of reasons. So, uh, one, I think uh, particularly travel has had uh, their pent-up demand over the top of current demand uh, impact now. You know, it, it's been occurring for the last three to six months, arguably. If we look at a lot of those uh, credits that were going into things like airline travel and, and potentially some hotels, a lot of those actually expire come June 30. And so I think we're seeing a bit of a spike of activity uh, in this half. Now, I don't expect it to return below pre-pandemic levels for the reason Wade articulated and, and Dr. Ross articulated before. I think there is a large proportion of the, the population that are now moving towards experience as, as a desire, as opposed to household goods and things. But I don't think it'll be maintained at this, the current rate. You know, I think it will extend certainly over the next six to 12 months, but start to taper off towards the back end of that 12 months to a more normal trend. Got it. And Wade, um, in the data you're seeing for June, any changes in the categories of either up or down based on, you know, we talked about travel being up 39%, essentials coming off. And so anything there that, that's an early signal on changes in those consumption and spending by the categories you've identified in the last quarter? Yeah, so I don't have uh, the specific figures on those, but but certainly I think what Tony was saying there about about travel, like it, it, there definitely uh, is that strength that we're still seeing. But I think Tony's right that you know there 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 has to be an end to this catch up, and and I think that what we see is it returning to what what I guess I call a new normal. I, like I do see in the data and and do think that travel will and not just travel but experiences will continue at a, a level higher than than pre-covid levels that will be the new normal however i you know they they definitely will be coming off where they are now they you know if it continues like this there'll be no one left to do any work 
Tony, key watch out for you in the next 12 months um, for both your business and what you think is going to happen in the market. For me, it's it's two things. It's looking at total economic activity. So what, what's actually occurring based on uh, cost of living uh, pressures and what's that doing to total demand? And then I spend a lot of time looking at the competition for share of wallets. So uh, I certainly be looking at uh, travel, hospitality, uh, experiences. I don't think entertainment in way of concerts has had its uh, re-emergence yet. So I'll look at segments like that. But largely, we've also got a lot of um, positivity coming into the future because of population growth, and we've got a backlog on new ho- uh, housing, um, both uh, uh, residential uh, apartment, which gives us actually quite a long tail into the future. Dr. Ross Honeywell, your final thoughts, uh, watch outs for the market and what you think um, kind of companies should be doing or thinking about? Well, one of the things about travel is that I think um, uh, premium travel is going to be staying strong. Uh, and I think the uh, economy travel and price based travel uh, is coming off. You know, we're already starting to see that. Uh, A warning for marketers and um, uh, brands into the uh, coming 12 months is that uh, stop believing affluence is a good predictor of consumer behaviour. You know, having a big fat wallet uh, isn't enough if all you're going to do is sit on it. So um, uh, it's one of the myths that needs busting. It's important to have affluence, but it's not enough. Necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, and the other tip is to really, you know, have a look at a premiumization strategy, exactly like Tony did, to make sure that you're actually getting the margin from the market that is uh, there to spend, and not just focusing on the people who, uh, uh, you know, are, are struggling to spend. So, a premiumization strategy is is absolutely crucial in the next twelve months to two years. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Tony Pearson, Wade Tubman, Ross Honeywell, fascinating conversation. I'm better off for it. I've learned a bit and actually got some clarity. So stay safe, keep spending by the sounds of it, and join the Neo Club because they're the cool club by the sounds of it, Ross. Look forward to maybe a catch up on this in, in six months' time to see what's actually happened. Thanks for joining. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.